All right, everyone. We're here uh, for a mini primer for this upcoming upcoming Throne Open. We've been talking about some of the meta decks like last uh, last episode. We talked about uh, this Overloader combo deck. And so I thought because we've been doing these constructed episodes and we've been talking about a lot of these uh, meta decks uh, tangentially as we've been talking about our brew around cards and stuff, that it would be good to have a... a a quick thrown open, uh, thrown open overview. Uh, we'll talk about some of the the best decks in the format, how these all uh, sort of interrelate, and uh, also since we have I'm straight here, and uh, they're already they already have one of their top fours, and so they just need to um, have one more here at this open to qualify for Worlds, and so I think they probably have their. Uh, hand on the pulse of the format uh, a lot better than I, I do. And also it's pretty interesting, I think, in how this throne format looks in relationship to our last episode where we talked about combo and how combo fit into the throne open. So uh, welcome, uh, Straight. Um, excited to do this. Uh, yeah, happy to be here. Uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost like we just recorded a two-hour episode. <laughs> yeah, <this>. almost. <laughs> um, yeah, so this one might have a little bit bumps. We haven't done a thing like this yet, but but we're going to do our best to get as much information and as little time as humanly possible. Um, so to begin with, uh, just a broad question for you straight is like, what are your thoughts on the throne format currently? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a. I think that's a great question. So I think the throne format, when talking about it from a competitive standpoint, right, going into a tournament like this, it is a relatively unforgiving, which is uh, kind of typical of uh, even of other card games formats that include kind of all the cards that have been printed, those kind of vintage type formats. You have access to all the cards, so you can do some pretty impactful things condensed in uh, very few turns. And I think that is kind of one of the key things that we see um, in this uh, throne format is that it's relatively quick. Uh, and if you want to be an interaction deck, you need to be able to interact um, to those uh, very powerful things that are happening in the first few turns of the game. And so, I, you know, a lot of people's knowledge of the throne format you know if we look at the last throne open it felt like the last throne open there were two major decks going into it there was the um the creation the three faction creation project decks and then there were the katra decks uh were there other what other big decks were there for that last throne open i think those are the primary strong ones um, I think we saw a couple of combo decks, synergistic decks, uh, then as well, um, Eclipse being a notable one. Um, and I think you also had uh, Sling decks um, potentially being being available in uh, Combray Equalize decks and Time Xena decks as, as well. I, I think there was a clear, there was a clear strongest deck for that one, or the clear two that you mentioned. Uh, so it was likely more between those than the other. Um, 
Yes, and then like the the Zine Index were really there to try to fight these creation uh, project decks at that open, and then so since since that open, we then had the nerf of creation project to four cost, um, and and that's been the big change. And so, how has that changed the format? Um, that's a good question. So I think there's a a few things that have that have happened. Um, you you mentioned the the adjustments. I think one of the, I guess arguably the more important card that was changed for that deck was the crescendo. Um, it's probably more important that that was adjusted from a, two, a one cost card to a two cost card. That made that deck not want to play that card as much. It wasn't quite as powerful as it as it was before, um, and you did mention kind of the Xenon decks as being a, a, a way to fight these creation project decks. But what is notable about the change that happened to the creation project is that now it dodges um, the premier uh, hate card against it that the Xenon decks were uh, using, which was end of an era. You could argue that the the matchup between those two decks was skewed more in favor of the creation project than prior to the nerf that happened to creation project. I would also say that there are two other cards that are very notable in the creation project deck that were not adjusted at all, which is Alessi and Abundance, which were arguably between Crescendo, Alessi, and Abundance, probably the three most powerful cards in the deck. Um, Creation project less so. It was kind of something that added a lot of incremental value, uh, kind of a card advantage later in the game. It was able to to help you keep grinding and grinding. But the thing that made the deck really fast and powerful are, are kind of the combination of those three two three cards. I think. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think? Yeah, and so creation project has had to slow down a little bit. Um, you know, so it still has its two really powerful one costs, but it did lose, um, like you said, the the flying spell. And so that also hurts its ability to do like really quick, fast speed protection. Um, and so I, I do think that I, in some way probably opened up the format a little bit. Um, yeah, I think some additional decks kind of uh, came up. Uh, as well in the format, uh, some new combo decks were were kind of brewed and, and released by uh, a player called Boxen and um, Isomorphic. I think at least for the Rakana Overloader, I know that I think both both had a hand. And then there is a, a Skyline Officer deck that I I don't know if both had a hand or if it was uh, just Foxen. Um, or Fox, uh, who was uh, who basically contributed to that, right? Uh, but there's basically some additional decks that that kind of came up in the format that have a little bit more of a let's call it rock paper scissors kind of um, component, um, or it, it it forced it forced the creation project decks to adjust themselves a little bit, like needing to play cards like. Combray Law Mage or some other cards that maybe are not as aggressive and therefore you don't necessarily just want to be a straight aggressive deck. Potentially you want to play 
want to play some some kind of uh, some kind of cards that interact with some of the more synergistic decks that have um, that have found themselves into being probably close to the top of the format. Right. And and do you think the appearance of these of these combo decks is it because creation projects slowed down? Like you know, we talked last week about these um, combo decks having their their sort of goldfish turn, and and it's like, is it is it that this goldfish turn uh, the combo the format slowed down, so the goldfish turn for these combo decks was good enough now, or were these just like decks? that could have been viable for the last throw open, but we just didn't know about them? Yeah, I think probably the latter. Um, it didn't... The Creation Project deck hasn't slowed down that much. Mm -hmm. um, the loss of Crescendo is impactful because it, it was a, yet another very low cost card more to enable uh, abundance and making like getting really big abundance turns in general um and then following it up with something relevant from your market as well uh so i think it was more a something that made abundance even stronger so like it, it's kind of one of those situations where they they nerfed around the card that was a problem, not necessarily like I've mentioned in the past on, on our podcast that I, I think all the, the spell market, like low cost spell market uh, uh, ways of uh, it, it, it just inherently very, very powerful. Um, so I, I think there's a couple of components. Um, the, Synergy decks are very strong in particular against decks like Katra that are, and Sling that are more grindy. They, they kind of attack the unit decks more, um, the strong unit decks. So I think, I think there is a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors thing going on and have, has put a burden on the creation project that could be a little bit different as well. So I think one is that it slowed down a bit because some of its premier cheap spells were nerfed and Another is that the changing metagame landscape kind of requires them to to interact uh, in some manner with a combo deck because it's too fast for that deck to be able to just goldfish against the, the combo deck. Right. So, uh, yeah, going back to this, uh, or continuing with this rock, paper, scissors uh, metaphor, is that how you view this format? Because, you know, I asked you to sort of break down the the sort of the top decks or the, you know, the tier one and tier two decks that have a chance in this uh, thrown open. And you sort of put them into three categories. And we talked a lot about these this like rock, paper, scissors concept in the last episode about combos. Um, so is that kind of do you think that is an accurate analogy for this format? Um. The way I see it, I think that it would be fair to, yeah, I think it would be fairly accurate. Um, you either, yeah, you're either doing the synergy stuff and you want to be pretty, pretty fast doing your thing. Uh, although one of the decks is, is not very fast, but it's able to play a ton of interaction, which as we go through the, just the, the decks, we'll, we'll qu quickly talk about. 
Then you have the aggressive decks that are just really wanting to apply as much pressure as they can. Um, you know, different scales of it, right? Because we talked about like creation project is a little bit slower than before, probably, but still it's applying a ton of pressure. Uh, maybe combining it often with some, a little bit of, of disruption. And, and then you have the decks that are kind of trying to go over the top. Um, so they're particularly good against the unit decks. And that's what their their whole purpose is. But they're very soft to um, to the to the synergy decks, the combo decks. So you, you at that point you you want to make sure if you're playing that kind of deck that you have a a, a good plan against um, the combo decks, even if it is that you are unfavored overall uh, to them. Right. All right. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, you know, we have. Uh the sort of four premier combo decks right now um, of the format. And uh, let's start with uh, Skyline Officer. So what's, what is this? And we're going to have uh, links to examples of all these decks in the show notes, but we're just going to kind of give an overview of what the, the deck is trying to do here uh, quickly instead of going card by card like we usually do with our brew, brew decks. Yeah, so within the combo decks, we'll, we'll start off with Skyline Officer, but you can look at the, the combo decks as kind of a two, two camps. One is the market combo decks, where um, they're utilizing many market effects to get to one card in their market that enables their entire deck to work, or in some cases, multiple cards. But the concept is just that you have those cards in the market. And then the other decks that we're going to talk about are kind of uh, card decks that are playing their combo pieces in the main deck and they're playing some kind of tutor effects to kind of get to them. Um, and there's considerations as to why they would be making uh, those choices. If you're playing the cards in your market, you tend to, by definition, be a little bit slower because you have to go to market a few times. That's one of the reasons why cheap market spells and cheap market effects are so strong because it allows you to to trim turns away from from getting those um, cards very reliably from your so uh, looking at the first deck that I have listed was uh, Skyline Officer so what it tries to do is it tries to get to Eccentric Officer in the market um, and play Eccentric Officer that uh, that card rearranges the costs of cards in your deck so step one to get everything to work is you need to play Eccentric Officer then the next step is um, the, the card that you're essentially using Eccentric Officer to convert the cost is uh, the Skyline Sentinel. Um, and that card is a 7-7 seven, seven for 7 that when you play it, you can sacrifice a relic to gain 7 power. So what this deck does is, as it's trying to go to market, get the Officer, it also plays one or two relics doesn't need many um and then it gets itself a one cost skyline it sacrificed one of it sacrifices one of its relics and it's able to fill the board with seven seven units and if it has a an additional market effect after that it's able to also go get exodus to win in the same turn right because exodus gives it charge correct <laughs> So what is the main advantage of this deck over like the more traditional eccentric officer builds with uh with 
uh, Kairos, the other guy. So Kairos and First Flame. Uh, the the main thing about this deck is you could argue that it it's a little bit faster. Um, there are a couple of reasons why that is, uh, but conceptually, the the main reason is a it's a little bit faster. Okay. Um, you you could argue it's a little bit less uh, more susceptible to interaction and hate cards, but realistically, the the main draw point to, as to why play this over the other one is I would I would argue that it's it's on average a turn a turn faster than the other version of Eccentric Professor, which is a pretty big deal when you're talking about format. Uh, shaving a turn off is uh, being able to win is is kind of it's pretty substantial. Yes. All right, so let's go into the Rakano Overloader deck then. This is, uh, you know, we talked about this uh, more in depth in in our last episode, but uh, what is this deck trying to do? It uh, This deck uses the card Overloader and the card uh, and the unit Nakas uh, to, alongside with different cards that target Nakas. And then uses the Naka's amplify ability to generate very large amounts of power off your overloader, and either um, either goes for a soul fire uh, sort of kill by targeting Naka's to generate an infinite amount of power because it has unleash, and then once you generate enough power, you can start uh, pointing the soul fire to the opponent instead of pointing it at your own Naka's or uh, goes to market to grab pyrotech to kill your opponent when you have 18 power um, generated. So this is probably the the fastest, um, the most reliably fast deck in a combo deck in the format. Being able to to kill your opponent on turn four, a fairly substantial uh, part of the time. So. Yes, if it if it if nobody interacts with you, um, and you don't, the concept of losing to yourself as a combo deck, which is how reliable you are at doing what you're doing, um, you're able to relatively consistently uh, go off on turn four. So that's um, that's kind of the boogeyman uh, of the format, I think, currently is that that combo deck. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're like all set on playing combo, is there a reason you would play the Skyline deck over this deck, or is this just the better combo deck? The Skyline deck would be better against certain kinds of interaction. So I could see somebody making a thought of thinking through that and, and kind of opting for, for, for that. So the Skyline deck would be a little bit stronger against um, hand disruption. And the overloader deck would be better, stronger against uh, aggressive decks. Okay. Interesting. All right. And then you mentioned here uh, the sort of traditional overloader. And I know in the last episode you were, you know, a little cagey about you um, (laughs) kind of exploring the traditional overloader deck more. so what are your thoughts on traditional overloader? Yeah, so traditional, what makes it traditional in comparison to the newer overloader is that the interaction between how overloader used to be played, um, which was you play overloader and you play a card called uh, Machinations, um, which utilizes your life total to amplify the card 
which then in turn generates a lot of power. So that deck is traditionally very soft to aggressive decks because its life is one of the resources that it needs to use in order to go off the majority of the time. There's other ways to go off in that deck, um, but the main way was always its life total. Uh, so Machinations at some point was adjusted. It used to be Amplify pay one life. It became Amplify pay two life. So that burden was increased. Um, not very many people have played that deck remotely recently. Uh, Earth's Overseer and myself have. So the, the deck that we're going to be linking is uh, from the last time that I actually played a Throne Open, which was earlier in the year that I made day two. Um, you can find kind of other versions of this exact list uh, on Eternal Warcry, but it's basically a four-color deck, and it um, it utilizes machinations and over. And so, again, broadly speaking, what are what are the advantages of traditional overloader over the Rakana overloader? So, traditional overloader is substantially better um, playing against um, hate cards. Uh, specifically card uh, like hand hate because it's playing primal and it's playing draw spells. So the idea that somebody goes and exploits your hand and picks your overloader or something like that isn't as detrimental because you're able to cycle through your deck a lot more as you're preparing to go off. The Rakano deck is very soft to the discard effects because it doesn't have a lot of card draw. So you're kind of relying on your opening hand or you're relying uh, cards, there's a randomness to what cards you see because you, you, you're you not able to sift through a lot of different cards in your deck. You've got some ways to tutor and the Rakano Overloader that we spoke about in the last episode when we kind of covered combos in general. Um, but they also require a whole draw, draw step because they put your your combo pieces on top of your deck. So Hand Hate in particular is very impactful against the Rakano deck. Right. Okay. And so let's go into this last uh, combo deck you have here, which is kind of interesting because I do think this combo deck sort of blurs the line because it's a market combo, but it's also a very controlling deck. It it can also be described sort of as a a control deck with a combo finish. That's a that's a good point. I think because of because it just always does its one thing to a almost uh, I call it hair pulling kind of cringe uh, thing is so the, let me backtrack a little bit. So the next deck uh, in the combo section to kind of round us off is Eclipse and. It is centered around uh, the card Eclipse and a way of making Eclipse uh, cheaper. Eclipse having Unleash, making it cheaper, allows you to play it over and over multiple times um, and allows you to, to kind of take advantage of it uh, fully and fill not fill your board, but make four to let's say six nine nine units that can grow um, on average um, that's a, about how many you make it when you go 
go off, quote unquote. What makes this a little bit unique is, in essence, you need 16 market effects, and then the rest of your deck almost is flex slots. So um, you don't, your, your entire combo is in your market. Um, so what that allows you to do is play a ton of interaction in the main deck. So on the one hand, it feels like a control deck, but you're not winning the game by controlling the game. You're not a traditional control deck like a Huru control deck. You're not trying to rack the board. You're not trying to interact with units other than just to slow things down to your pace. You're able to play eight plus discard effects. So you're able to interact with whatever hate your opponent might want to play against you. Um, and the whole point of the deck is to go to market twice, to grab your discount for Eclipse, to grab your Eclipse, put your Eclipse on top of the deck, and play a bunch of nines. And that's kind of what the deck does. I have a naive view here because I've never actually played against this deck. But doesn't is this a combo deck that just loses to a control deck? Like, what do you do when your opponent sweeps the board? Um, you go to market again and you get a reread, or you get um, a way to rebuy your eclipse and do what you are doing again, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you're able to you're able to eclipse three to four times so you can refill your board with nine lines three to four times right um and together with your discard effects a traditional control deck would probably have a better game against eclipse than other combos but because you also have a lot of hand interaction it allows you to potentially get rid of some of their ways of dealing with your units so it can grind out control decks um as well um, it is pretty soft to, I think Katra is probably its least favorable matchup um, because Katra is able to do pretty pretty broken things in, in of itself. It's able to accelerate very quickly and get to like subversion or that which which just completely completely destroy you. Right. Okay. So those are the, the four decks we have labeled as combo decks. Uh, the next category we have are aggressive decks. And I, I think these are can fit into two categories. Uh, one are sort of our more traditional um, aggro decks that we see in Throne, and that's a Skycrag aggro and Stone Scar. And then we have a three faction and four faction creation project decks. So let's go quickly over our sort of old faithful uh, aggro decks, uh, starting with uh, Skycrag, which uh, kind of got popularized recently when uh, Buckwheat, a uh, longtime player, uh, sort of posted a rank one um, October for October uh, Skycrag aggro deck. And that, I think, really, really upped the number of Skycrag decks you see on ladder. So always a popular deck, just in general, it's the most aggressive color combination that you see typically it's packed with really good one drops and two drops um it applies a ton of pressure tries to finish off the game as fast as possible my it's it's a it's a relatively inexpensive deck so it's really easy for players to put together and and, and also get pretty pretty great results on ladder i would assume that you see a decent amount say in day one typically speaking these kinds of decks you don't see a lot of on day in day two but you will they they're Indefinitely, there will be some representation. 
uh, of these decks in day two as well. Yes. Yeah, and then the Stone Scar deck, I, I I think, is pretty interesting. Stone Scar is also sort of a stalwart of the format. People like to play it a lot. Um, it's always there on ladder. But uh, the the deck you link to is uh, Mail's uh, top sixty four deck uh, from the last thrown open. I thought that was pretty interesting because uh, you know Mail is a pretty competitive player. They do like to sort of brew and bring their own decks, but you know Stone Scar. You know even when we talked about the last thrown open, you know Stone Scar just wasn't really on the list, and and yet you know. Uh, Mail did have a pretty good showing uh, with this deck. So y it does seem like there's a possibility that someone could have a good showing with Stone Scar again. Yeah, it's definitely very possible. The reason why I linked to uh, Mail's deck specifically is there's a lot of different ways to build this deck, um, but the way that Mail built it for that thrown open was was very heavy on the interaction that I think is relevant. Um, so I think that's more than anything else. It's able to produce, it's it's that combination of applying pressure and being able to disrupt at the same time that is so powerful against the synergy decks. Like you mentioned, Stone Scar was probably not a very high showing. Mail is a very good player. So I would also imagine that I would also expect that it would be disproportional if like most people were to play that deck. They wouldn't necessarily do as well as Mail uh, does because he's such a good player. So um, I think that that's something important to consider as well. But like I mentioned, lots of different ways to make this deck. The reason I I'm sort of brought this one up is because I feel like out of the possible ways that you have to build the deck, this one is a particularly good choice for uh, the metagame. Yes, and because the meta hasn't shifted that much, um, I guess besides for the Rise of Combo, but he, you know, even in his deck, he's was playing uh, four exploits, which is uh, I think the main disruptive element we have right now. Right, he's he's playing he's playing exploits, he's playing eavesdrops, he's playing uh, sinister rumors, which all have relevant uh, interaction points to to a certain combo. Um, even toll of warfare <laughs> in the market. Um, notably, what I'm going to tell to to people uh, who may be listening, uh, Sinister Rumors Mode Three is something that gets played a lot more than should be played um, by people. So um, I think there's there's a, like a running joke about uh, Sinister Rumors Mode Three. But that being said, it is very very relevant against certain decks. Uh, certain interaction decks, certain combo decks, for example, Eclipse is doing like this one thing. It's putting, it's putting Eclipse on top of their deck, and they're going to draw it the next turn so that they can do their thing. If you can time your Sinister Rumors, for example, that is one way of interacting with their, with what they're trying to do. Going back to a little bit more of what we talked about last, the last podcast, where we we said that you know it feels like these combo decks are you can't interact with them, but there are very distinct specific interaction points, pretty much for all of them that you should be aware of and understand so that you can interact with them when it is applicable. So, do you think these aggressive decks are are fast enough to have a place, or do you think they're just going to sort of appear 
because there's a critical mass of players playing them. I, I think it depends. I think probably the Creation Project X are, are the strongest of the bunch here. Mm-hmm. Um, and likely the critical mass thing is going to come into play with Skycrack Aggro more than anything else. Um, and I think the Skycrack Aggro deck is going to be also be very dependent on the matchups they run into um, in whether or not they, they show how they show up in, in day two. And I think that's also true of the Stone Scar deck as well. But creation project, the creation project decks are probably more well-rounded and will likely have really strong finishers in general. I wouldn't be surprised if the if the if we look at percentage-wise of day two decks and creation project decks are a pretty high uh, high percentage of the deck. Right, and so we, you know, I think most people know what the creation project deck is doing. It's uh, creation colors. It has creation project in it. Um, it has a lot of powerful power cards that we've been talking about, like uh, Alessi and Abundance. And so it, it's able to play a lot of units quickly and then turbo out a, a huge unit through abundance. Um, it has card advantage. Um, it has a, it can sort of go wide and go tall. So it's very problematic to, to deal with. Um, I have heard talk though uh, that, you know, compared to the last open, the creation projects have gotten a little bit beefier. Uh, do, you th- do you think that's true? I think it was more of a knee-jerk reaction to people just going, just saying like, "Oh, Crescendo's nerfed, therefore, you know, change the deck completely." Um, I'm not sure that it's necessary to change the deck completely. I, I think, uh, I think there's different builds. Uh, we just linked basically to builds that have been out there, um, but it aren't necessarily like, you know, the strongest ways of, of building it for this specific environment. So that ends up going down to. The players that have been playing in ladder, the teams that have been tuning these decks, um, there's probably slightly different considerations to what you know the posted decks from previous opens. But I, if I were to guess, um, the probably the the decks that are going to do better are going to be pretty aggressive, right? Um, not not that much bigger. Okay. Um, yeah, because that was an interesting dynamic that happened in Expedition is. You know, they especially because the Throne Open was first, people started with these like more aggressive creation projects, and then the creation projects kept sort of getting bigger and bigger to fight off the other creation projects, uh, partially because you couldn't go quite as fast in Expedition. But, right. All right. So, what does uh, adding a fourth color to creation project uh, do for us? It gives you access to Shadow, which gives you access to Exploit. So some better interaction against the combo decks, and um, it gives access to deep grow as well, which is likely something I haven't played this matchup a lot. I have a little bit of time to keep pre- preparing, but I would assume that it's a uh, particularly good against the three faction uh, creation project deck. So the four faction creation project deck is maybe uh, a way to fight the three faction uh, deck more because. It gives you access to Decro. It probably has a substantially better game against, um, yeah, the other creation project decks and, and aggro decks in general. Right. Okay. Cool. So uh, that's let, more intuition. But what, yeah. Yeah. That's more of my intuition. All right. So let's go into this third category, which we have is mid range and control decks. Uh, you know, these are a lot of uh, 
the sort of the stalwarts of throne uh, we'll find here. Um, you know, there's two versions of Xenon that are seeing play right now. There's uh, Katra Xenon and uh, Kenan. So uh, do you want to say what Katra is trying to do quickly? Yeah, Katra Xenon is, is, is like a shadow heavy Xenon and it, and it centers itself around getting as much of uh, an advantage from the card Katra as possible. Um, we talked about this this deck a little bit last episode. If you guys want to hear sort of deeply about it, but but essentially it tries to uh, discard cards from its deck into the void the first few turns uh, with units, and then plays Katra and tries to play a lot of uh, two to three power cards from its from its void, uh, which then uh, gains it life, ramps ramps it, and allows it to start doing some. Uh, pretty powerful things with that kind of quick advantage that it gets. It's um, it's a pretty strong deck because it's centered around a really strong, deck, and that card is being Cotter. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Time Xenon is is time heavy instead of being shadow heavy, and then it has cards like Alhead and Spiteling um, that take advantage of that time heaviness, and then it has some cards like Tokos or um, some interaction, hand interaction again with exploit. Exploit you'll notice is is pretty common. Any shadow deck, pretty much will have exploit. Katra traditionally didn't have exploit, but I would think that in this environment you, you want to build it in some manner that contains it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's the Tinan deck was more controlling the shadow Katra. Xenon deck was more a synergy. I'm trying to do my thing and take get a really big advantage by playing my my Katra. Right. Yeah. And then exactly. So Katra is kind of you know due to the you can tell by because it has a card name in its in its title is more of a centered around the one card and so it needs to focus more slots to making that card better. While Tinin, I think, is a way to you know, play Xenon, which has our colors that have a lot of strong cards, and then also play more disruption. You know, like Tokas is doing quite a lot. Uh, Tokas uh, has a, a a lot of, you know, helps a lot to slow down like the Rakano Overloader deck because it it allows them not to, you know, they can't target their Nakas quite as easily and st- stuff like that. So that's what, that's sort of the, benefits of Tinan right now, I think. Yeah, Tokos, Tokos basically makes it so that the Rakano Overloader deck cannot go off until they have dealt with they have dealt with the Tokos. And it's not particularly easy to deal with either because it's got four four toughness. So the 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 cards that the deck is playing kind of at face value are not not particularly great at interacting with that Tokos. So as long as Tokos is in play, that deck cannot win. So that's that's one important aspect as to why. But it's also a very good deck against other kind of synergy decks. It's very good against another deck that we will talk about a little bit later, like Huru Kira. Um, so it, it just prevents your opponent from being able to target their own units, uh, with spells. So if that's a, a critical part of what the opponent is doing, then that completely shuts them down. Yes. And then Tinan was also just like a deck that people played a lot because then you can also get... Um access to a lot of relic uh, hate 
And so that also can, um, you know, have some yeah. game against creation project. It's like a well-rounded kind of like deck. It's It's been in the format for, for a really long time. And it's just the way that it's looked has changed based on what the other decks in the formats are, are doing. It's, it's a, a, like a more typical control deck that you would think about, right? It's, it's like it, it has, it tries to play powerful cards and a lot of powerful answers and those answers change or those cards change based on the. Yeah. All right. And then the uh, next deck uh, that I want to talk about, it feels like this like deck came out of hibernation, but, uh, and that's Sling, uh, you know, a, a menace, uh, the, the old menace of the throne format that kind of disappeared after a bunch of nerfs and um, balance changes and stuff, but it has reared its head again. And I think this is mostly off the back of uh, Dean's Chamber, which is a card that came out uh, in the mini expansion. Um, so, so what is, uh, the sling deck doing? Yeah. So the sling deck is kind of like centered around the card and its name, sling of the chi. Um, so what that is, it's a relic. And when you play a unit that has six or more power, you do six damage, uh, to an opposing unit. And if you have a unit that has six or more toughness, in play at the end of the turn you draw an extra card so it's 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 a it's an oppressively strong relic against other unit decks um so i don't know if the reason it like reared its head again has much to do with um dean's chamber in particular uh there's different ways of building that deck but it's always been a traditionally oppressive deck against against decks that rely on their units to win the game because you are able to just once it's in play and it's really difficult to interact with and kill it because they can get uh face ages they're just able to just keep killing your units and draw cards because of both the effects that relic has and they just draw out the game and it's kind of impossible to come back um so it's it's one of my least favorite decks, but there's a lot of different preferences out there, obviously. But um, it uh, so what Paramaru is mentioning uh, is the recent addition of Dean's Chamber. So between Dean's Chamber and Suppressor, there are two different effects to prevent summon effects from happening. Now, Sling has traditionally been very soft to those kind of combo or interactive or um, synergistic decks. Well, maybe Dean's Chamber and Suppressor kind of help with some cases. Some some of these uh, Sling decks are also trying to use those cards to, to be able to to kind of cheat on some some uh, units like Balax because it prevents the sacrifice effect from Balax from needing to be fulfilled when you play it because it prevents summon effects from happening. Um, how sling decks get built probably varies, but realistically, the main point of the deck is uh, sling of the chi. Yes, yeah. I I guess I just think you know with now that you have Dean's Chamber again, you you add more disruptive units, but then you also like you mentioned, um, you know, it does have the synergy with Balax, and, and now you're not just like hoping to draw one you know so you just had four copies of each and so it's not you know that's not a very reliable um 
early play, but then now that you have eight of the suppression effects, you know, it makes that cheese win more likely. And, it, yeah. you know, th this kind of reminds me like people, I listen to a lot of magic podcasts and, and people kind of talk about this in modern or in legacy where you just kind of want your deck to be able to have like a super high rolly draw. And I think that's one of the thing that Dean's chamber helps add is like to, f to increase the number of just like, I win high roll draws that you can get with the deck. That's certainly true. I think you can consider the eight cards of suppressor plus Dean's chamber as just like a package, um, a disruption package that I think can fit, especially because they're colorless into any deck that doesn't rely on summon effects itself. I don't think that, I think I would argue that the, the sling decks that are trying to do that as a main plan are just inherently weak because it allows them to, it allows um, a different avenue for them to be attacked that would generally be unnecessary otherwise. Like those decks are very powerful because of sling. They don't need to, to like play two cards to play a two cost eight, eight, especially because if they're playing it against like a time Xenon deck, then they spent like two different cards to try to get their two cost eight, eight that the opponent just all nighters for one to the bottom of their deck. So it's like, it's not that exciting. Realistically, they can cheese some wins, but I don't think that's what makes those decks impressive. I no, and I, and I wouldn't claim that that's what it makes it impressive. It's just like adding that to like a, a late game inevitable deck like Sling, you know, it gives it another angle of attack. It's, it, I guess it's more in my mind kind of like with the creation decks having Alessi, having Abundance, having, you know, you just have, you're just like the deck is attacking from too, too many different angles and you know, I, I feel like Bellex can, does that in, in some sense. Uh, obviously, like, Bellex definitely is weak against the the Xenon decks, which, you know, if they're a huge part of the meta, could be a, a problem. Um, but again, in open deckless formats, you know, if you're playing against the Xenon deck, could probably not go all in on your Bellex either. Yeah, I mean, definitely day day two is going to be very different to to day one, right? When you when you know what what decks you're going to be facing against, in comparison to when you queue up for your day one and where you're going to be playing more like you're playing in ladder, um, for sure. It's just that the decks that tend to try to use the um, the Dean's Chamber suppressor kind of effects to their advantage as well, and just play maybe some subpar units open themselves more to losing to themselves than than the traditional sling deck so i think it's it's kind of interesting if the sling deck wants to play that as disruption because it doesn't get affected by it as much which then allows it to be disruptive against decks that do need to summon effects um but at the same time you don't need to overcommit to that and make your deck worse because you're now playing some subpar units that are only there to become good units if you have the other play. Because even if you have eight of them, sometimes you don't draw it. Um, I'm like, 
the traditional overloader deck, for example, has four overloaders and four tutor effects for overloaders and card draw. And I find myself like digging, digging, digging sometimes through like 24 cards, and I find neither of those. So it would be, it would be pretty pretty terrible for the sling deck to like keep holding all those bad units that are not good, you know, without the suppressor effects. Right. So it, it kind of goes both ways, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. All right, uh, this next list is kind of interesting that you added it here, and it is uh, Felm Midrange. Uh, what's your thoughts on this deck? Yeah, um, it's it's been a deck that has always been in the format, again, kind of like in the time Xena, the, the, just, or Xena in general. So Xena and Feln have always been like traditionally very strong mid-range decks. They're able to play like the best units that they can in those colors. Disruption, um, both of them have exploit. Then this one centers more around like Champion of Cunning as your like really big play. So I think inevitably there's going to be some amount of are they as good as other options? Probably not, but I think it's I think it's an important thing to add to the meta because it's always something that you should in some way think about, expect. So when we look at these kind of decks, personally I don't think that the mid-range decks in general are going to be doing great. Um however, depending on what you run into on day 1, then you could do really great and going into day 2 it becomes their 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 strength probably starts shining a little bit more. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I agree with all that. Um, all right. Then this next set of decks here are uh, the two controlling decks, which are Combray Equalize and then uh, more traditional Huru Control. Do you want to talk about these decks? Yeah. So I'll start with Huru Control. It's, that's the traditional control deck. Um, so uh, it's um, primal and uh, justice, and it, what that it's it's really a more traditional concept of what you would consider for as a control deck, even uh, from like magic, for example, where you have like your draw spells, you you try to to draw as much as you can, keep your hand full, you keep up counter spells a lot of the time. If your opponent puts a lot of units on in the board, you try to play sweeper effects to get rid of the units. And you play very few win conditions um, to win the game. So you, you're, you're playing your like either one giant unit, um, or you're playing the Stormhold plating um, as your primary way to close out the game uh, with a couple of other options in the market. Um, and the the list that we're linking is like a a list from a previous open from my teammate the the Burgund, who has always played these kinds of decks. That's that's kind of what he's known for. Um, so it's it's kind of like a, a list that that again it's it's like you need to adjust these kinds of decks depending on the format. I'm sure he's gonna have like different considerations. I would expect that he would bring something like this because he always does, for example. Um, but um, but this kind of deck is a very traditional conceptual like control deck that you would expect. Um, Combray Equalize, on the other hand, uh, centers, it is a control deck, but it centers more around a card called Equalize. And it tries to, even though Equalize seemingly seems to be a symmetric effect, it tries to get um, an advantage from it. So 
equalizes a three-cost spell that says that each player discards hand size down to to be the same, essentially the opponent and yourself. It you sacrifice units until you both have the same amount of units. So if zero units are in play on one side and the other side has a board of units, then the one side that has a board of units sacrifices their units. Um, so those are the symmetric effects, but what it doesn't do in terms of symmetry is uh, power and play and relics, for example. So you're able to play a whole bunch of relics, use up the cards in your hand, um, play a bunch of extra power using up the cards in your hand, and then equalize at some point so that the opponent discards a whole bunch of cards, sacrifices their board, and you're left with these relics that can do certain things. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like uh, e the equalized deck is like the the deck that'll never go away. E everyone calls it a bad deck, and yet it, it keeps showing up and keeps getting mentioned. And uh, do, you, so, do you think uh, you feel like it might have a place, might make a copy, might make uh, day two of this open? I would be very surprised if a single copy does not make day two of this open. Uh, simply because it's just, it has a really good game against unit decks if it draws the right cards. Um, and if it draws the right cards, again, like if, if it sees its equalizes, it's really difficult for the opponent to win because it has this ability, you know, short of like queuing into combo decks all day because it's pretty soft to combo. It only has kind of a, f a few different ways of of uh, being able to deal with a combo deck. But Equalize is such a strong card, and because this is the best deck to disproportionately use it, um, it, it, I feel like it will always have a place as long as Equalize is the card that it is. Right. The whole deck is basically Equalize. Builder's Decree is a very strong card that's in the deck, and that's kind of like one of the win conditions, and it slows down the opponent. It, it does all sorts of stuff like that, but equal, it's the whole deck is Equalize. So if they ever change Equalize, this will not be a deck anymore. Um, if it remains as it is, this will be a deck. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, no, that uh, that is, I think, uh, as ringing an endorsement as one can give for, <laughs> for Equalize. I, th I think it, it, it's in a, a much maligned deck, but it does have some powerful cards. It ha does have a game plan. Um, it does seem weak to combo, though I guess you could you know, cause your combo opponent to discard all their cards with Equalize and then hope yeah. for the best. Yeah, you find yourself drawing like two Builder's Decrees that you just cast for one, not even Amplify, to slow down what they're doing. And then, you know, build, like, empty your hand, cast an Equalize, even discarding them down to two cards. And all of a sudden, you've slowed them down, like, tremendously. So it's just that there's only very few hands that are able to do that. So Traditionally speaking, equalized decks are just not not that great into combo. Okay, and then our final deck we want to talk about uh, sort of defies categorization a, a little bit, uh, but it is doing something pretty powerful, and that is Hurukira. I didn't know where to place it, so it's kind of like somewhere in between aggressive and somewhere in between like mid-range and control, like not control, but mid-range. Um, so... The thing that it does more than best than 
anything else is just get this r- ridiculous just incremental card advantage because of Kira. So the the unit the unit here that it's kind of centered around is uh it's similar to Alhead. So it's a it's a justice justice unit that says that when you have uh four justice uh when you target it with a with a with a spell and and I I don't have a hunt I don't have the, the most experience of the deck too, so if I misspeak here at all, please uh forgive me, but conceptually this is what it what it does. So if you target it with a spell, uh you draw a card. Um it it gets another advantage. Uh, the card Kira gets an additional stat line. So when it's when you hit six influence, justice influence, it, it gets plus two plus two, so it becomes a four three and gets endurance. Uh so it becomes kind of a more substantial unit, it's able to attack. Once you hit eight, it now is when it attacks gives its power and toughness to another another, I think justice unit, I want to say, but just another unit. Um, so, so the point of the deck is to ramp your justice influence quickly to use a lot of different spells that protect, uh, and target Kira, uh, a lot of one cost spells, which draw you a card every time you target them, which draws you into more target spells. And then it uses either it wins by hitting eight influence and then, um, pumping Kira heavily and being able to attack and, and pump another unit as well. Or it wins by uh, grabbing the Huru site from the market, uh, from its market, which is able to like row your units and uh, give them uh, Berserk as well that you're, you're able to attack for a lot of damage. So it, um, it's very, very good against decks that are trying to grind you out because you can grind them out and protect your units. Kind of, that's conceptually uh, it. And then it's you know, if I'm playing combo, then I'm pretty happy if I run into Kira, but but also they have capabilities of disrupting you through Law Mage or through having aggressive draws. So somebody who's very uh, very knowledgeable of the deck or has a lot of experience is is really able to take advantage of every little piece of it. So it's a very difficult deck to pilot um, because it can play in many different ways. It can be aggressive, it can be slow, it could be incremental advantage. So that this kind of deck re- requires a lot of a lot of experience. And it's a deck I think people kind of dismissed for the last open, and yet uh, you know Stormblast did make it in uh, with a with a copy in the last open. And it does seem like a a deck that's always around. I do think it was probably hurt a little bit with the crescendo nerf. Um, some versions play crescendo, and other versions don't. So the the problem with crescendo is it limits the market. And some, I think, most notable the the most common versions or the strongest versions probably didn't play crescendo. They were mm-hmm. just playing. They have access to etchings, which because they're a heavy justice uh, deck, which kind of alleviate some of the pressure because <clears throat> they also want to play the site in their market the six cost site right no that that is true yeah and then i did hear there were some rumblings of people wanting to experiment with uh, argent port kira again and that'll that would 
give you sort of that the draw and grinding engine of Kira, but then also maybe give you a little bit of access to more disruption like exploit. So at that point you you're you're saying that you have more disruption than the Hurukira, but substantially less good um drawing capabilities because you're losing access to some pretty important one cost spells that you could play with Primal for that for that deck. Right. Um <clears throat> There's probably also like an, a Legion deck out there that is kind of plays more similar to Kiro, where it's kind of a. It could be aggressive if it needs to be. It could be more controlling if it needs to be more card advantage oriented. So, um, we didn't really outline uh, an Elysian deck, but I'm, I'm sure that there 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 could be a deck out there uh, like that as well. It's it's more of the they have existed in the format for a long time, whether or not somebody decides that it's right to bring it or not is kind of up for debate, but it's just common things that have existed. Cool. Well, I, I think that was a pretty good summary of uh, all the possibilities uh, for the Throne Open. Do you have uh, any final thoughts? Um, no. Um, I think just good luck, everybody who chooses to play. I hope this is help helpful to everyone. I hope my teammates don't... Uh, don't get upset with me for uh, helping the uh, <laughs> helping the people out there who want to compete in the tournament. Uh, but I think it's 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 cool that um, you know we can give some content and some stuff to to folks who may be interested in in uh, competing. Um, and uh, for anyone who is going to be competing at the tournament, I will see you. I will see you there. I hope that I beat you, <laughs> even though I gave you lots of advice. Uh, because I would really like to make top four. And uh, yeah, that's that's all I have. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I'm sure there are some mis mystery decks that we did not line that, that will appear uh, in day two. So I don't think you gave away all your secrets. I, I'm sure there will be. Um, <laughs> there's, always, there's always very clever people uh, working hard out there. So you'll, you'll, you'll see some other quirky things, I am sure. All right, well... Thanks. Thank you again, Straight, for coming on and sharing all this knowledge with us. And uh, yeah, have a good night, everyone. Bye.